are live from the Empire of Lies, a bastion of truth, free speech, and open debate in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration and the New World Order. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. So we're through a three-day weekend, and we're joined by our guest co-host, the great Jason Goodman, on Truth Tuesday from Crowdsource of Truth. Hey, Jason, how you doing? I'm great, Lee. How are you? Good. Did you have a nice vacation? Uh, yeah, I did. Columbus Day, right? Right. I find it ironic that Carmine Sabia, you, you've heard of Carmine, of course. Yep. The Monday co-host and a proud Italian-American was canceled by Christopher Columbus. What do you mean? He was supposed to be on yesterday because he co-hosts every oh. Monday. <laughs> but Columbus canceled Carmine. There you go. Does that make sense? Got to be racism or perhaps, I don't know. So we have two great guests, one of them live. Live this hour will be the great Scott Ritter explaining to us a lot of what the hell went on this weekend. Great. We had a vacation, which was nice. But think about this, Jason. How long ago does it feel like the Crimean Bridge got bombed? Well, yeah, a long time ago. Does that make sense? Yeah. It was only a few days ago. It was only Saturday morning. But that it feels like a long time ago, right? It does. So we had the Crimean Bridge bombing, and then we had the retaliation by Vladimir Putin yesterday. And it continues somewhat today. So Scott Ritter will make sense a lot of that stuff for us and bring you the latest news. Then in the second hour, she's not live, but Taylor Hudak is a frequent guest of the show, and I consider her a friend of the show. Taylor is a journalist and activist who does work on Julian Assange, among other things. And she did a great speech that I thought was a great intro for people who've forgotten or people like me who know the history but had forgotten some stuff. It was a great speech about Assange that I'm going to play in its entirety next hour. And people are going to learn a lot about Assange. Does that make sense, Jason? I'm looking forward to that. So, one live guest, and you'll have to fill in as the live guest in the second hour, Jason. Okay. I thought we would just talk longer because I was, we have great conversations. And that's, and, and we'll also be taking your calls 202 521 1320. Jason, what in fact is the name of the show? Take us out to the boom, won't you? This is the backstory. Okay, I'm going to get to callers. Sharif is on the phone, so I want to get to him right away. 202-521-1320. Tarif from Louisiana. What's on your mind? Hello, Tarif. How you doing? Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free June Assange. I have two comments, Lee. Here I go. The first comment is, found out the National Endowment for Democracy is the one behind what's going on in Haiti by, by um, trying to keep those puppet presidents in. Also, they're behind other... Um, corrupt puppet um, presidents as well. Um, the, uh, the BRICS need to call attention to that and basically stop the, um, the United States, France, and Canada from putting troops in um, 
uh, Haiti. So the Haitians can determine their own freedom, their own path to freedom. My second comment is this. It's not a, okay. It's not a coincidence that Julian Assange caught COVID-19, right? Over the weekend. Remember, Lee, I know you probably remember this. Two months ago, uh, Representative Green from out of Georgia stated that he was looking into changing the Espionage Act once they take over in Congress in January the 20th. And that means Julian Assange will be free. Uh, Donald Trump won't have to worry about what's going on with his case anymore. And Snowden and some other people will probably be freed as well that leaked information about what the wrongdoings the U.S. was doing. So, now, Sharif, wait, who are you saying said that? Um, um, I forgot her name. You know the one that's feisty? She's mega. The one that's from Georgia, Green? That could be uh, Marjorie Taylor Green, yes. Yeah. I, I would say Lauren Boebert is also feisty. So, but you're saying Marjorie Taylor Green. And that's fantastic news. And I've... I've said positive stuff about Marjorie Taylor Greene. She does seem to be an independent politician. And note to Rod, we got to get Kiriakou on to talk about that. See if he knows about it, and we'll get him on to talk about that. Go on, Tarif. Oh, but yeah. Yeah, so uh, based on what I was saying with the um the situation with Julian Science, we got a we got a press uh, LBC of uh, um, Australia to to basically ask them to come back home to um, Australia. And we got to pressure the staff, the medical staff at Bumhouse prison staff to give them good treatment so you won't get too ill and pass away before you have a chance of being released when they change the Espionage Act or, or BC freedom. I keep on. You think, do you think they gave him COVID? You said it's not a coincidence that he got COVID over the weekend. I have no proof, but. Knowing what um, uh, uh, Major Taylor Green said two months ago, saying that they and, the espionage. And Tree, be honest. Do you think there's any possibility Julian Assange will die of COVID? Wasn't the last time you heard of anybody dying of COVID? They may have infected him with the sniffles. I, I don't want to. Julian Assange is a hero and he's being tortured and he's being imprisoned. But the worst thing that happened to him is not that he's got COVID. Do you see what I'm saying, Jason? Absolutely. Uh, do you really worry about Assange at this point, October 2022, having COVID? Because COVID's not that deadly anymore. So what do you think, Tarif? I just thought it meant he was getting weak and sick in jail because he's been in there so long and they're treating him, as you said, they're torturing him. Yeah, that is true, and his, and his system is kind of weak already. He already suffered a lung disease, and by having COVID, I hope he got the mild case of it to actually prevent him from getting the worst case of it. But still, no, we got to put pressure on the, um, the courts in um, Britain to make sure he get the right while he's in prison. You know what I'm saying? Because he's been you know, locked down for 24 hours a day. Are they treating him? So we got to speak a lot. I, I, I agree with that, but I, the COVID is not the thing I'm worried about. The thing I'm worried about is he's had strokes in Belmarsh prison, too. I'm yeah, more I mean, worried about that. They've stolen his health from him, right? I mean, whatever happens to him now, even if they released him tomorrow, they've stolen a decade of this guy's life. He's got kids. Right. It's like, it, it, they, and they, I mean, look, this is what they wanted to do, right? They've shown everybody this can happen to you. And 
version two is everybody who decided to go into the Capitol on January 6th. They're also locked in prison working on what, two years now? How long have those people been there? Uh, well, this is how it goes now. Post, post-constitutional right. America. Joe Biden's America. Welcome to it. So uh, great call, Tarif, as usual. Thanks very much for the call. Now, Jason, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. One of yeah. the headlines today, I think one of the big ones, is that Tulsi Gabbard announced yeah. she's quitting the Democrat Party. To no one's surprise, no one's thought she was a loyal Democrat. Because what kind of moron would be a loyal Democrat at this point? And she's not <laughs> stupid. Well, Hillary I, I said serious. she's Russian. Hillary says she's working for Russia. That's because Hillary Clinton is a traitorous criminal. Hillary Clinton is a person who is trying to steal Russia's oil assets with her friend. Derek Scherer was trying to steal Russia's oil assets and natural gas assets. Derek Scherer was trying to steal Gazprom. They're basically James Bond villains. Tulsi Gabbard should sue Hillary Clinton's fat old ass. Sue her. Sue her. I I think she did, but the problem was demonstrating financial damages because it brought more attention to her and everything. So I think that I think that there was at some point Tulsi Gabbard, I believe, did sue Hillary Clinton for saying that she was a Russian asset. If she called her a Russian asset again, sue her again. Sue her every time. But this is how the courts are crooked, though, Lee, because you know Hillary, they're all. They're all Democrats. So let me stop the, you, Jason. Judges. Let me stop you. Let me stop you, Jason. All courts are not crooked. In not fact, all. some people win in court. And here's what I'll say. You don't win if you don't play. If you don't sue them, you'll never win. There's no possibility they'll say to you, you were wronged, so we decide to award you this defamation settlement against Hillary, even though you didn't sue. You have to sue. You have to sue. And uh, I hope... I'm not saying that Tulsi will win if she sues. I'm saying that she has to keep on this stuff. You, what do you think well, about but, that, Jason? But, well, no, I mean, listen, I'm not going to promote suing people, but you're right. You got to fight back. And what is so what is Tulsi Gabbard going to do, though? Is she going to be an independent? Is she joining the Republicans? Because it's going to make it more difficult for her to get elected if she's not part of Republicans or Democrats, right? I disagree. I disagree okay. 100%. Right. She's okay. not trying to get elected, first off. Second off, yeah. I'm going to throw something out to Tulsi Gabbard. Become a libertarian and take over the Libertarian Party. It's a good idea. The Libertarian Party is right for, is right for a takeover. It, and and a strong leader way, with a good, good media profile. Yes, that's right. A, a, a veteran... Which is another reason Tulsi needs to sue Hillary. Hmm. I really am serious. You well, maybe have another to jurisdiction. After. Yeah. Yeah. When when rich people and Hillary Clinton, you know, I used to live in Chappaqua, Jason. Yeah. Did you know that? I think you've told me that before, but I had forgotten. Yeah. So Chappaqua is a nice community. Yeah. Everyone there is rich. So when a rich person like Hillary Clinton defames you, I'm not talking about randomly suing people. I'm talking about when Hillary Clinton defames a war veteran of being a Russian asset, which is a complete lie. There's no way in which 
If she said useful idiot, that's a different claim. And that's her opinion. And it's false, but is not the same as Russian asset. That's a very definite claim. I, I, I think the way it would need to be framed, and again, I don't know what Tulsi Cabard plans to do or is doing, and this is certainly not legal advice, but it's got to be that by calling her a Russian asset, Hillary Clinton is accusing her of a crime and that it's got to be defamation per se. And I don't think she did that. So the problem, as I recall, that she ran into is that one of the you know, elements of defamation is you have to be financially harmed by it. And I don't think she was able to demonstrate that, so she lost the case. If she were able to demonstrate that Hillary Clinton was accusing her of a crime, then that would Tulsi resolve Gabbard, that. My advice is hire a better freaking lawyer. If right. they couldn't show financial <laughs> damage by a politician being called a Russian asset, you have a sucky lawyer. And it might be a guy who stands there with his armpits out like this. <laughs> I was just making fun of Robert Barnes, for those yeah. of you who missed oh, it on no, the camera. I don't, think he, I, I don't think he was lawyer. And we would have to check. I'm going by memory here, and I'm not looking at any of the information, but I, I seem to recall something like that happened. My advice is anyone the pillow guy has hired, don't hire. That's you agree with that, Jason? Absolutely. I do not but, like uh, Mike Lindell or his lawyer, Alan Dershowitz. So I should point out something, Jason. If I sounded like I was yelling at you earlier, you know I love you, and I wasn't. But I I'm trying that. to do this thing. I'm trying to increase my energy or the way I speak on the show a little oh. bit. Does oh. it make sense? Sure. I think that you are continuing to uh, show improvement and recovery from your recent, you know. I'm trying. Yeah. So last thing I'll say on the Assange thing, this weekend— the big demonstrations happened on Saturday. They surrounded right. Parliament, and I was out there with my sign, my new right. sign, picture yeah. of Assange. And we got a lot of, Jason, you were here before yep. when I sat out there with my impeached Biden sign. Uh, as soon as I held up Assange's picture, about five cars started honking. Wow. Wow. So even more than for yeah. impeached Biden. Huh? Wow. That's great. Yes, no, me more. Danny and I noticed right, oh, right away. Wow. Yeah, see, it's terrible what they've been doing to Julian Assange. And, you know, like I said, it's too late. I hope they do, you know, release him, let him out, of course. But even if they do, it's too late because they've already done this for 10 years. And it's terrible. Well, the damage has been done, and I hope he right. sues, too. Yeah, I mean, what but, court's uh, going to give him a fair shake? I got a lot of ever. clips today, Jason. So let yeah. me start to get to some of these clips because I have so many. The sure. first clip, did you ever wonder what fascism is? We've spoken about it a lot. Well, perhaps we can be el elucidated. That's not a word, really, but it sounds like a big, fancy word. Well, perhaps we can be educated by MSNBC. Do you trust MSNBC to give you a good definition of fascism? Definitely not. I think they are participating okay. in it. <laughs> so I think you're a bit cynical, but prepare to have your cynicism smashed, Jason. I think you're gonna... So let's hit that. MSNBC defines fascism. Hit it. Yeah. Civilians, hey, freaks, fascist freaks on the right, there is no moral ambiguity here. There, there, there is no comparison 
between Russia and Ukraine. And, and you prove yourself to be the fascist that you are when you suggest the same. No, I agree. There's no more equivalent between Russia and Ukraine. Yes. I'll tell you what. If Russia were Ukraine, do you know what they would have done yesterday? They would have launched missiles at Ukraine. And when the missiles hit Kiev, they would have said Zelensky fired them. Exactly. Am I right? <laughs> yes. No, I'm serious. I'm deadly right. serious. Well, not they only absolutely that, not only that, Ukraine degraded itself. I forgot about this. When you were asking me earlier, what I was trying to put my finger on is the Crimea Bridge. Yeah, that seems like a while ago. But I'm talking about it's you've almost forgotten now about the explosion of the pipeline, which was only a little while ago. So there's so many terrorist actions being carried out against Russia. You know, Ukraine lowered itself, as Putin said, to the degree of the worst terrorist organizations around the globe by striking that civilian infrastructure with a truck bomb. I mean, that's a terrorist. And, and let's not forget the terrorist bombing that Ukraine did. Those weasels, Nazi weasels, I guess, measles in Ukraine <laughs> did against 29-year-old Daria Dugina, Dugina. in yes. Russia. Yes. And they bombed her in, in Moscow. Right. And the New York Times has admitted the Ukraine did that. Okay? And it's so there's obvious. no doubt about it's that. Obvious. It's obvious. She was on a kill list, and then she was killed. And, and the, you know, they identified, showed video from surveillance footage at her home of a known Ukrainian, you know, secret operative. Uh, that's how an investigation gets done. I don't understand why the FBI can't solve any crimes. It's It's ridiculous. You know, Russia seems to have they're like sort of collective heads screwed on straight. In the United States, I don't know what's going on. And I'll say Russia's the moral equivalent of Ukraine when Russia issues a kill list and they put Getty Lee from Russia on it because he's a basis from Russia. And Roger Waters, <laughs> he, the basis from Floyd, is on the Ukrainian kill list. Right. And by the way, right. Russia, don't go after Getty because I like him. And there's no reason to. But... Uh, there's no no more equivalent. You're right. One of them has a history of fighting Nazis. That's the Russians. Right. And one of them has right. a history of being Nazis. That's right. Stefan Bandera and the Ukrainian Nazis. So we and 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 if anyone wants to get educated on that and you're not clear on it, just call the show at any time. Two zero two five one. 1320. Now we have some, speaking of Assange and having COVID, Costello announced, his wife announced that over the weekend. Let's see what the CEO of Moderna is saying about the mRNA. That's tougher to say than you might think. The mRNA vaccines. Okay? Sure. Let's hit it. Don't appreciate is we raised three billion US dollars to get the technology to this point when the pandemic happened. And we were expecting to raise a couple more billions before we're turning a profit. But you were looking for things such as hard tumors, how to break those down, things for heart disease, different things. You weren't necessarily looking at that time for flu-type symptoms, were you? So we were working for infectious disease. So we had already a big portfolio of infectious disease vaccines. But to your point, we've always thought that this information molecule, the mRNA, 
could be a very, very powerful medicine that we inject in your body so you make your own drug. Um, and as you described, we have exciting programs in cancer, here, you know, in skin cancer. We're going to have the data by the end of this year. We just presented two weeks ago at our annual R&D day data in rare genetic disease where kids are unlucky. They get the wrong DNA from mom and dad, and they cannot make a protein that you and I have. So what do we do? We design in the mRNA instead of spike, to sell your protein to make spike, like in the vaccine case, we put the instruction that you and I have in our DNA. And we give it IV to those kids to go into their liver. And when the mRNA delivers the instruction in their liver, they make the protein that they are missing. And the early clinical data in terms of reduction of hospitalization is quite compelling. And so I think rare disease is also something we can do. As you say, cardiology, we have now in a clinic a super exciting program when we inject mRNA in people's heart after heart attack, to grow back new blood vessels to help revascularize the heart. So it's a bit like science fiction medicine, but that's so that is really exciting to me. But the, the other side of this is that right now, Moderna, though it has this pipeline, has one commercial product, and that's the spike vax. That's the actual COVID vaccination. So that's the irony of COVID, is it really has in some ways allowed you to go and develop these other areas because of the revenues that came through the door. You're 100% right. So I think that's interesting, Jason. I don't have any medical knowledge, so I can't comment on the viability of mRNA. But the fact that he's admitting that COVID basically paid for lab trials, does that make sense? Right. Well, I mean, we knew that, sure. He, he seems to have very lofty goals and says it sounds like magic, you know? Well, again... I don't know enough about developing drugs. In fact, yeah. I know nothing about developing drugs. So I don't know, you know, when they're developing penicillin or whatever. Right. I don't know how that went. But it's interesting. If someone else had said they were using COVID to fund their research, they might have been banned from social media, right? Yeah. No, but if the CEO of the company says it, right? Yeah. Jason, it's okay. go ahead. No, that, that's what I was asking. That was Borla for CEO Pfizer, or who was that? The CEO of Moderna. Moderna, right. Yes. Okay. Huh. So, Amazing. Uh, now, in related news about social media censorship, let's listen about the Surgeon General from the great state of Florida, who's been banned from Twitter, but unbanned. Okay, Let's good. Hit, hit it. People sometimes who are still, you know, hemming and hawing about this. If this, if this vaccine, if it had been known two years ago or so that this vaccine would increase cardiac deaths in young men by 84 percent, would they have approved it? The obvious answer is no. You would never give something to someone who was young and healthy and increase their risk of dying from card from sudden cardiac death by eighty four percent. But people are often their response is, "Well, you know, I don't know. COVID's pretty bad." Yes, COVID <laughs> can be terrible, but we don't give people medications that kill them. That's apparently what got him in trouble. Now, it's dangerous. Twitter which is apparently going to be taken over by Elon Musk. Twitter is doing 
a danger by even temporarily banning that guy. Do you agree, Jason? Absolutely. I mean, you know, he's the Surgeon General of Florida. I mean, we we definitely know there have been a lot of reports of myocarditis and like famous soccer players getting heart attacks and stuff. So that's kind of known. If he's, you know, citing an actual percentage or getting that wrong, I can't speak to that. But he's a doctor, and let's assume he's correct, even if he's slightly in error. How does Twitter have the right to censor that? Okay, Jason, I've been told Scott Ritter's on the line. So let's take a short break. And when we get back, Scott Ritter will catch us up on all the events in Russia and Ukraine over the weekend. Excellent. So take us out, Jason. This is the backstory. on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. We're joined now and honored to have the great Scott Ritter as our guest on the show. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Hi, Scott. Great, thanks. Thanks for having me. So I was saying to Jason earlier, it feels like the Crimea bridge bombing happened about a week ago, even though it only happened Saturday. So much has happened this weekend. Do you get that sense too, a little bit, Scott? That it feels it feels like a long time ago, almost that the Crimea Bridge was bombed. What do you think, Scott? Well, I think it feels that way because there's been a um, a decisive shift in the momentum, the attitude, um, you know, pretty much, you know, the entire approach of Russia seems to have gone through a transformation with the appointment of a a new commander, a unitary commander who has a more aggressive approach to um, resolving this uh, special military operation, Um, the scope and scale of the uh, Russian um, missile attack, Uh, you know, just the the audacity of the Ukrainian government for carrying out such a wanton, you know, uh, act of international terrorism. I know the bridge is a legitimate military target. I will never pretend otherwise. Hell, if I were an American fighting the Russians, I'd have dropped that bridge on day one. Um, it's not that the bridge uh, isn't the target. It's the method of attack. Um, you know, to, to, to use a truck bomb, a suicide bomb, um, you know, that, that's not a, uh, a method of war. That's an act of terrorism. Uh, and the other thing is that the Russians for eight months had pretty much gone soft on uh, Ukrainian infrastructure. Uh, there were occasions where they made a, a point by temporarily knocking out some electricity, but they did it in a way that could be rapidly rebuilt. Um, but one of the you know, underlining uh, assumptions was, we go soft on you, you don't touch our critical infrastructure. Ukraine violated that rule, and now the gloves are off, and uh, Ukraine's waking up to a new reality. And I think it's the harshness of this new reality that adds that the, the, the you know the the artificiality of uh, longevity. It's only been a couple of days, but it seems like a week. So let me ask you a couple of questions about what we know solidly about that bridge bombing, because we've been hearing all sorts of stories, and it's almost like rumor ping pong. Uh, 
because we heard the guy was a suicide bomber and then he did not know he was carrying explosives. But what's the best knowledge that you have now, Scott? Was this guy a suicide bomber or was he put up to it? Well, don't know. I have to be just straight up and say I literally can't give you a definitive answer on that. What we can say That's a great great answer, by the way. The the truck he was driving blew up and he was in it and he died. Um so it's you know, it it's a suicide bomber like attack. Whether he was uh knowledgeable of this or what I mean, you know, but then it raises questions. If he wasn't knowledgeable, um who who set it off? There were you know, was it remote detonated? Uh, there would have been a signal. Russian intelligence presumably would have uh, picked up, you know, a signal of that nature. GPS or GPS is a, is another thing. But again, um, one would imagine that uh, Russians, in addition to having the radar reflectors, uh, would have GPS jammers around that bridge to prevent any GPS guided munitions from striking. So, uh, I mean. I'm I'm open to any scenario. I'm a fact-based guy. I mean, I let the facts determine things, not my speculation. Um, there's just a lot of data that would have to be put on the table uh, for me to say, yeah, this guy was uh, was not knowledgeable of um, of what happened. Now, Russia has pointed out that the truck that was used to bu- do the bombing apparently went on a circuitous route, but it, it started in Bulgaria. What, what do we know about that, Scott, about the truck? Just what the Russians said. I mean, here's the interesting thing about the truck. It went through multiple scans. Um, you know, so, the, you know, the Russians, you know, they don't live in the Stone Age. They're, it, it's an advanced nation that knows pretty darn well how to, you know, counter terrorism. And so it went through scans. It went through visual inspections, um, which tells me that the explosive that was used was not... Um, of the conventional variety that it was explosive that was designed to evade detection, which, you know, leads me to believe that this was a higher, uh, this wasn't just, uh, you know, Scott Ritter and Lee Stranahan sitting in our garage going, Hey, let's get some uh, fertilizer and some diesel and uh, what the hell make a bomb. Uh, this was, you know, sophisticated explosive with a sophisticated design that was, um, you know, purposely built to avoid detection. That's what it suggests to me. It does, I'm, again, I could be just dead wrong, and the Russians could have been in, incompetent as the day is long, and, um, you know, a, a more basic bomb got through. But um, I don't view the Russians as incompetent. I view this bridge as being uh, of strategic interest for the Russians and that they would have put in, you know, a um, concentric circle of, uh, of defenses to protect this bridge. Um, against all possibilities to include a truck bomb. We know they scanned the vehicle. We know they inspected the vehicle. Why didn't they detect the bomb? Great question. Now, Jason, do you have any questions about the Crimean bridge bombing for the great Scott Ritter? I got a sound problem for a second. Stay with me. Okay. And when you come back, do you have any questions for Scott on the Crimean bridge bombing? Because I feel like we should you know, update people on the latest stuff on that. And so we, we don't know solidly yet who, who what the motive of the per- person driving it was. But we know a lot about the truck. Scott, do you think that the Ukrainians planned the attack 
to come on Putin's birthday. Do you think, do you suspect that? Well, again, it, that comes down to the driver. Um, if this was planned to occur on Putin's birthday, then the driver had to know because he had to time it to be on the bridge on Putin's birthday. The securitist route that they're describing, you know, could have, you know, could have, um, you know, if, if this guy didn't know, uh, he could have come a day earlier, a day later. Um, you know, he could have found a girlfriend in, you know, what in Sochi and spent three weeks. He could have done any number of things. Uh, and it was just, um, you know, it was pure serendipity that he was on the bridge on that date. But if he was on the bridge because it was time for Putin's birthday, which is very symbolic and sounds like something the Ukrainians would do, then he had to be complicit. Now, Scott, my understanding is the the bridge, despite Western reporting, despite the U.S. and the U.K. especially, their reporting, the bridge was not completely taken out. In fact, the trains were running that day on the bridge. And I'm led to believe that road traffic is back on on the bridge. It was damaged, no doubt. But what is your understanding of the damage that was actually done to the bridge, Scott? Well, the bridge had, from my understanding, uh, at least uh, four lanes. They had two lanes of traffic going one way, two lanes of traffic going another. Um, the, the, the bomb uh, dropped one of those one of, one of the, the the spans one of those those lanes but there are two lanes uh, and so i think the bridge has been um converted to uh single lane traffic going each way uh but cars are definitely driving on the bridge and they're going to be able to repair uh you know the uh, the dropped segment the train uh, i think the cars were actually going the, the pretty much the same day uh the train it took a little bit longer they had to um run a test train across the track they, they had to repair the track if you saw the the damage done to the track it was melted uh but again the, the train has two tracks capable of doing traffic both ways and so i think tra- rail traffic was going on the one uh track that uh, was one undamaged so it's not going to be the same level of rail traffic for instance a train will have to completely traverse the tr- uh, the, the bridge going one way and then they'll close it and let it, another train go the other way but, um, you know, train traffic is going, car traffic is going. If the goal was to shut down this bridge, then they failed. Uh, the Russians will repair this bridge to its full capacity, and, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll get back up and running. Um, but it was, I mean, let's just call it what it was. It was a spectacular attack, uh, whether it's a terrorist attack or, or whatever. Um, it was spectacular. It got everybody's attention. It got Russia's attention. Ukraine's paying the price. Now, and we'll talk about the, the retribution Russia's wrought on Ukraine recently in one second. But Jason and I were talking about a number of things by Ukraine. This attack, the attack on Nord Stream 2, and the assassination in Russia of Darya Dugina. Note uh, a shift in Ukrainian tactics. I would say they've they're using a lot of terrorist tactics lately. Am I wrong in that, Scott? No, I mean, there's there's no doubt that the uh, Ukrainian government is a state sponsor of terrorism. Ukrainian intelligence service is a terrorist organization, and the employees of this service should be treated as terrorists. Know this how? 
He assassinated Daria Dugina in Moscow using a car bomb. Now, Jason, do you, any more questions for Scott yeah, on the yeah. Crimean Earlier, Bridge? Scott, yeah. You said that doing it on Putin's birthday, it sounds like something Ukraine would do. And I agree with you. What what causes you to say it sounds like something Ukraine would do? And a laden game. Um, everything you do is symbolic. For instance, the offensive that they launched early in September um, was purely a political offensive. From from a military perspective, it made no sense. And that, that proof's being played out today. They burned through their reserves. Their military's in a desperate situation. Um, they're panicked. They're begging for more equipment. Uh, but they knew this was going to happen, but they had to slaughter tens of thousands of their own troops to create the political impression of Ukraine, you know, capable Ukraine resistance to get the West to provide um, money uh, the, and, and equipment. The Ukrainian government, one of their, their, their basic strategy is this. They need to do as much damage to Russia's reputation and to Russia's uh, forces uh, to create political unrest inside Russia so that there could be the Moscow Maidan, Maidan being the square in Kiev where the revolution in February of uh, or the coup in tw- February of 2014 occurred that ousted Viktor Yanukovych. Right. Its regime, et cetera. They want to remove Putin uh, doing that. So it makes sense that they would um, attack Putin's reputation, his big day, his big celebration, by blowing up what the Russians had themselves made to be the symbol of, you know, modern Russian prowess. They built this bridge that nobody, everybody said couldn't be built. They built it. The bridge is beautiful. The bridge works. It connects Crimea with, uh, with the Russian mainland. And um, they blew it up on Putin's birthday. It just sounds like something the Ukraine. Yeah, no, I agree. And you know what? I, I have some experience dealing with Ukrainians, and I agree that they go for uh, drama and, you know, sort of don't care about what the, uh, you know, the consequences of their actions might be and uh, meaning in everything that they do. I agree with that assessment. And, and, and Jason, in the interest of full honesty, just say it, Scott, I, and go for it, Jason, say I was my ex-wife, my ex-wife was Ukrainian. Ukrainian gymnast. Yeah, my ex-wife. Scott. I'm just saying, you know, there was a tendency to do things that were, you know, damaging to herself just to hurt me. And uh, I've been gaining a new understanding for some of that behavior through this war, because I agree with you. It's very Ukrainian. And doing it on Putin's birthday, that was a detail I wasn't aware of, actually. But that does sound yeah, that, and and Scott, that was a great report on what we know about factually about the Ukrainian bridge bombing. Now let's talk about the attacks yesterday. After the bridge was bombed, I was basically sitting there waiting, and we didn't have long to wait for a reprisal because I think, and in Putin's speech, I've said, and it's a joke, but it's not a joke, that if Ukraine had done. What Russia had done, Ukraine would have blamed the missiles in Kiev on Ukraine. They would have said Zelensky missiled his own city. Now, the Ukrainians, every time they do something, 
they lie about it and blame Russia. Am I detecting a pattern that's almost a joke at this point, Scott? Because they were saying that the Russians bombed the Crimean bridge, right, Scott? Well, they, I mean, that, that's something they said early on. They also said the Russians shelled the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. They said Russia shelled the prison holding the, uh, the Nazi uh, prisoners of war. Um, you know, they blame everything on Russia. But as you said, it's just become a parody. It's, uh, it's like a Saturday Night Live skit or, you know, an onion piece or something that nobody, nobody takes it seriously. Everybody knows um, what's going on. And, and, and the Ukrainians can't be trusted. I mean, that's one of the things. This isn't, this is like crying wolf, you know, 400 times. No one's ever going to believe them again. And that's why I said it's a false equivalent about Russia and Ukraine. Instead, Putin comes out with a statement saying, we did this. Now, in his statement, taking credit for the missile attack, because duh, obviously Russia did. Putin, people, I, I see people in the Western media saying Putin, the way they describe it is, he, he said is because of the bridge attack that he blamed on Ukraine. But again, duh, obviously Ukraine did that. But I heard Putin talk about the terrorist acts, which includes Jargugina, I think, and includes Nord Stream 2. What do you think this was, in fact, a reprisal for? Or do you think it was not a reprisal, but it was a planned attack that Russia was gearing up already to launch a strike on Ukraine that would be harsher than they'd done in the past with them building up the forces. Does that make sense, Scott? Was this a reaction or was it a planned attack, do you think? Well, it was both. It was a planned attack that was waiting for a trigger. Um, I mean, I've, Good answer. I've, I've done this kind of uh, operation <laughs> before I've been involved in this. And uh, I, I know, for instance, you just don't wake up one day and, um, and, and launch this kind of campaign. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Uh, you have to gather the intelligence on the various targets. Uh, that intelligence needs to be updated regularly uh, to include um, Ukrainian air defense. Uh, you can't plan an attack uh, using cruise missiles against a um, against the site a month ago um, and then just execute that plan. Because if you haven't updated the air defense, they'll shoot your missiles down. You know, each flight path is picked based upon an intelligence overlay that says this is where their air defense is. So you plot your missiles to go through that so they can reach the target without getting shot down. That means that you're updating it every day, maybe a couple times per day based upon your intelligence input. You need to plan the, the, the aircraft. The aircraft have to take off. You have to have uh, a specific launch area that has to be secured by fighter aircraft and your own air defense. Uh, you have to deconflict the missiles to make sure that you don't have cruise missiles hitting one another, so you have to time the release of the weapons. Um, this, there's a lot of planning that goes into this, um, and I believe that the Russians have had this plan in place. They've had the weapons allocated. You, you know, you just don't snap your finger and invent weapons. They have to be there, allocated, earmarked for this. So do the aircraft, the fuel, the pilots, everything. And they've had this sitting in the, uh, on the ready table waiting for the appropriate trigger. You know, the, the Russians have said if you attack uh, Mother Russia, these newly acquired territories, that could have been a trigger. Um, you know, Putin alluded to the terrorist attacks. He talked about three attempts to attack uh, 
a Russian nuclear facility near Kursk. Um, had they been successful in one of those, that could have triggered it. Uh, but as it turned out, it was the bridge that triggered it. And when the bridge happened, I think the, the green light was given. And then, you know, the plan was implemented, which means you got to brief everybody, get the airplanes up, fueled, run, loaded with the weapons. And then you update the intelligence and then you execute the plan. But this is a plan that I think is going to be longer than just a couple of days. I think this is going to evolve into a campaign, um, which means now the Russians have to have all their systems up, collecting intelligence, feeding it back, um, you know, making sure that when they hit a target, they destroy a target. If they didn't destroy it, they have to reschedule it to be hit to make sure it's destroyed, update the air defense, take out the air defense. Uh, this is very sophisticated. This isn't just a, you know, a whim of an angered person seeking revenge. This is a cold, calculated response by a nation that takes war seriously. Now, the first day of the attack by Russia, the missile, the renewed attack by Russia, I've heard estimates from 75 to 300 missiles. Scott, do you have any idea, what do you think the right estimate is on how many missiles Russia launched? Well, 300 seems quite high. Um, 75 seems a little low. So I would, I would go with the, you know, somewhere in the middle, about 150 missiles were launched. Um, you know, uh, some of them were shot down. Uh, there's no doubt about that. The majority of them hit their targets. Um, you know, you, you want to go big the first day, take out some critical infrastructure. And then I, I think what you do is you, you, you start to throttle down um, and you just keep a sustained strike package, you know, that could be anywhere between 50, 75 missiles a day. Uh, and you sustain that for a number of weeks. But the first day you go in big, it's part of the shock and awe, but it's also part of you, you need to start shutting down critical infrastructure, the power generation, the rails, uh, the roads. Uh, they haven't hit bridges yet. I'm surprised about that. But um, eventually those two must fall. Uh, command and control, uh, taking out leadership. Um, all of these things um, need to occur. But remember, each target you hit has to have intelligence that, um, that makes it a viable target, or else you're just blowing up concrete and mortar. Um, and that's just... Scott, my understanding was the SBU building in Kiev was hit. Is that, that your understanding too? Yep, that was going to get hit no matter what. Um, even if even if the even if the boys weren't there, symbolically they ordered the attack on the bridge, so their building's going down. Jason, any comments or questions for Scott Ritter on the Russian reprisal against Ukraine in the past couple of days? Well, we know that Putin has said that attacking the decision-making centers would be the next phase if NATO and uh, the nations that are supporting Ukraine's effort don't stand down. Scott, do you see any targets outside of Ukraine coming? No, no, um, not, not yet. I mean, well, an important thing that might be happening, the United States is making noise about providing Ukraine with the Attackums missile. That's the 300-kilometer uh, range missile that uh, works with the HIMARS launcher, the, um, the the highly mobile artillery rocket system that the United States has provided. Um, so far, the United States says they wouldn't provide that, but now because of uh, the escalation, uh, there's people in the United States saying they haven't excluded that possibility. Uh, Russia has made clear that is a game-changer that could cause them to take out um, – you know, logistical and decision-making centers related to that. And um, 
I would imagine that if an attack of missiles was deployed and used and it struck Russia's territory, that um, there would be certain facilities and installations in Germany and in Poland that would be struck by Russia in retaliation. Now, Scott, what's going on with Belarus? I've been hearing a lot about Belarus this weekend, that Russia could be staging stuff in Belarus, and there's increased tension between Belarus and Ukraine. What do you know about that, Scott? Well, it's clear, I mean, based upon the statements of the Belarusian uh, president, uh, Lukashenko, and his defense minister uh, and others, that um, the Belarusian military and the Russian military have formed a joint operational group. Um, The purpose of this is unclear. Uh, My speculation is that this group will secure Western Ukraine when the time comes. Um, you know, there was talk, you know, every, everybody likes to blame the other person. So the Belarusians were blaming the Ukrainians about threatening them. Ukraine doesn't have sufficient force to threaten Belarus. Uh, one concern is Poland, um, you know, that Poland would attack Belarus because it's not Russia, etc. That's not going to happen. I, I think the danger here for, for Belarus is, and for Russia is if the Zelensky government collapses, as I believe is the strategic intent of the Russians, what happens to Western Ukraine? Does Poland move into Western Ukraine um, and, and seize that territory, uh, thereby allowing this odious ideology to continue, this Stepan Bandera worshipping neo-Nazi thuggery? Um, so I, I think what we're seeing here is Belarus getting prepared to, um, to make a move on Western Ukraine to secure that uh, in the case of the collapse of the Zelensky government. That's my speculation. Now, Scott, I'm going to butcher his name, but the new military commander you hinted at, Severe, the Severina, what's his last name? Just, Maybe your Russian is better than mine. Just call him General Armageddon. That's his nickname. Right. So talk about that. What's the significance of that? And what is this new military commander doing, Scott Ritter? Well, the significance of this is prior to this, Russia was running this war with, I think, four different uh, fronts or, or you know, uh, directions of attack. With so one was managed by the you know central military district, one was managed by the southern military district, one was managed by the western military district, one was managed by the northern military district, uh, and then these all four would report up to the general staff, uh, General Gerasimov in Moscow, and. Um, this, this led to confusion, a lack of coordination amongst the, the front, uh, inadequate allocation of resources, um, and just all the things that made the this, this special military operation to date um, fairly inefficient. By bringing it under a single theater commander, everything will now operate in sync. Um, you know, everything will be coordinated, and everything will be more decisive. You don't have to go to Moscow and have things checked off by people who are hundreds of miles distant from the front. You'll have a general who, prior to this, was commanding the southern front and doing quite well as a commander, a lot of successes. Uh, he knows what this is about, and he's going to apply that hands-on, forward-leaning leadership to directing the entire fight. Um, he's also been told that he can use all the means at his disposal, except nuclear weapons, to accomplish the mission. So the gloves are off. This is a very aggressive general who, um, you know, when Russia went into Syria, when he came in, 
you know, he was confronted with Russians who were saying, we need to be surgical in our approach. We need to be tentative. We can't, you know, overstep. And he said, nope. When you see him, kill him. Hit him with everything you got. And he, he took that maximalist approach and he decisively crushed ISIS and helped uh, Syria regain the momentum uh, in, that, in that conflict. That's his approach. He's a very, very uh, aggressive leader. And the biggest thing about this appointment, uh, beyond the, um, I, I think, the, the uh, effectiveness that's going to bring by bringing a single leader in charge, is that he is a new generation of leader. Uh, he's, by promoting him to this level, the Russians basically bypassed a lot of experienced generals uh, who were in line for this. And I think that's a signal uh, that, you know, Putin is not happy with that generation of generalship, that, uh, you know, that he, he needs younger blood to come in, shake things up. Uh, and this is a guy that if he succeeds in this task, and there's every indication that he will, will probably re- replace uh, General Gerasimov as the, the head of the Russian military. And, um, you know, the West needs to wake up that they, they just basically empowered, um, you know, a very aggressive, young, dynamic uh, leader who um, is probably going to be a player in the Russian military for um, many years to come. Now, Scott, in the last 30 seconds or so, is there anything else you think everyone should know about the events that transpired this weekend? Scott Rayer. I think the most uh, dangerous thing right now is the announcement by Jan Stoltenberg that NATO is going to hold a, uh, a, a nuclear exercise to test their nuclear uh, command and control. This is the dumbest thing that, that they could ever do at this point in time, uh, because the Russians will have every reason to believe that NATO might be considering a, a preemptive nuclear strike. And it's just increasing tensions at the absolute wrong time. But this shows just how panicked NATO is right now. They know Ukraine is lost. They know Russia is going to win, and they know they don't have a viable option. So they're playing stupid games. But when you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. And the biggest stupid prize that can be won on this is a general nuclear war. Uh, the whole world should chastise NATO for what they're doing. And, and Scott Ritter, as usual, thank you so much for a fantastic appearance. Scott, you have a great week. We'll talk to you later. That was Scott Ritter here on The Backstory. second hour of the show that brings you the truth behind the news. I'm Lee Stranahan with our guest host, co-host Jason Goodman on Truth Tuesday here on The Backstory. And I want to thank Scott Ritter once again for a fantastic appearance. Jason, what do you think? What did you learn from Jason, from Scott Ritter? Jason. I thought it was a great appearance. I mean, I didn't know that NATO had announced uh, nuclear drills. I agree with Scott. That's the stupidest thing they could have possibly done. Why keep escalating? Well, well, I'll talk about that in a second, uh, what my theory is. But coming up this hour, uh, a speech by Taylor Hudak that I thought was so great about Assange and the history of Assange. That's at the end of the show on today's episode of The Backstory. 
And the number, if you want to be part of the show, 202-521-1320. Guess who's on, Jason? Uh, oh, Owl Killer. That's right, the Killer of Owls. So, Owl Killer, 202-521-1320. What's on your mind? So, your old boss, Steve Bannon, was on uh, Alex Jones today. And um, he is totally for peace. Uh, between Ukraine and uh, Russia, he thinks that the first thing that a Republican uh, majority should do is negotiate some type of peace treaty and stop arming up and stop, stop giving weapons to Ukraine. So he's totally against uh, us doing that. He did mention, however, that... By, by the way, let me, look, I'll call, let me stop you briefly. Do you know who else I saw say stuff very sane is Raheem Kassam. Raheem used to be the editor of Breitbart London, and he worked closely with Bannon after Bannon left Breitbart. So Raheem was saying stuff that I considered, although he was a little too much false equivalence. You know, Bannon, my guess, I didn't see the parents. My guess is he's still hedging his bets and saying some slightly negative stuff about Russia or saying, well, I'm not defending Russia, but am I, am I right, Al Killer? Yeah, I, 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 there was definitely that type of sentiment in what he was saying, for sure. Yeah. So what do you make of Bannon taking that position? So, I, again, it, it's, it's bet hedging. That's, that's definitely what it is. However, he was much more anti-Ukraine than he'd been in, been in a while. He's definitely not what you would call a, a, a Russophobe. He's not a, a Russophobe, and he's also not a Russophile either. Um, I will say this. He pointed out the Drudge Report, and he said basically the Drudge Report, what you see on a daily basis, is the propaganda from the establishment. And Scott Ritter was bringing up how, you know, doing this on Putin's birthday. It's funny he says that, because on Thursday or Friday on the Drudge Report, if you go, when you go on the Drudge Report, on the top left-hand corner, that's basically the propaganda for the day. And they were like, is this Putin's last birthday? And he's being, he was confronted by a very powerful person in in Russia, blah, blah, blah. But I found it weird that they mentioned, is this his last birthday? And, you know, with the Ukraine being subscribing to the, um, you know, the Nazi ideology and Stefan Bandera and every, and all of that, the Nazis were very occultic and they did things on certain days. And it, it does seem like as soon as that happened, I'm like, okay, I remember seeing that headline on Drudge and that, and, and then I also remember how obsessed the Nazis were with occultic type of stuff. And whether it means anything to you or me, they, it seems like something somebody vengeful would do to like, oh, I'm going to get you back on your birthday. It, as babyish as it is, that's the, that's the level of, you, when you hear these people talk, that is the level that you're dealing with. Um, well, yeah. I got it from Ukraine was bragging about it. That's what Ukrainians were saying after the attack. So... You know, great call, Al Keller. 202-521-1320. Who'd you say we have, Ingrid? Our friend Ingrid from D.C. Hey, Ingrid, how you doing? Okay, Lee. I have several things to add about the Kerch Bridge attack. But um, this morning on NPR, there was a story about a young Ukrainian girl who was killed in the, in the Russian rocket attacks. And they, they, 
made a long story of it and how sad it was that her house was hit. I think trying to show them as uh, regular working class people, this reporter pointed out that the house was sitting flush up against a fuel storage tank depot, which was also hit. So you've got your very definition of collateral damage, however, however tragic, still not a war crime. But um, and they they never mention anything. Have as NPR, I've not heard them mention once about the missiles being launched into central Donetsk that have killed many civilians over the past couple of weeks. Has NPR ever mentioned the Donetsk missile attacks by Ukraine? Well, I haven't heard it. If they have, no. But no, and ne- ne- neither have I. Go on, Ingrid. On the on the Kerch Bridge, I read something. I'm sorry, I can't remember where, but at the time, it it seemed to me like sort of an official report, and saying, although there's some very strange things in it, saying that there were actually two trucks. The circuitous route was taken by the truck coming out of Bulgaria. But after it had already gotten into Russia, it was transferred to a second truck, and they named the owner-driver of that truck who was killed and claimed that he was blind, that he didn't know he was carrying explosives. And then further, they said that this fact that the truck blew up was a diversion, and there was a larger charge actually planted below the bridge. Now, this seems odd to me because they would have gotten anything planted there, plus um, an earlier photograph of the bottom of the, the span that had fallen shown a picture of that. It, it didn't have any damage. So I'm saying it doesn't necessarily hang together, but it, it seems like they had gone to some great length and deta- on these details. So it, it may have been not just, you know, there may have been more to it than just this truck blowing up. So great update, Ingrid. Thanks for the call. 202-521-1320. What do you think of what Al Killer or Ingrid had to say, Jason? I think that's pretty interesting because it did look like a gigantic explosion on the bridge. But then again, as uh, Scott was pointing out, you know, Russia's as sophisticated as the United States with military stuff and security. And I don't think you could wire up their bridge with explosives without them noticing that. Yes, there was a train that was a, a full of fuel, and supposedly ah. the the truck bombing was coordinated with the train with fuel being across uh-huh. from the truck. Does that wow. make sense, Jason? Well, it does, and it's that that explains the huge explosion. So, see, yeah, that just sounds like you know Ukraine IT army type stuff. They somehow know when the train is going get a truck bomb on there and blow it up. And I don't know the whole part about the guy not knowing that there's explosives. How do they know that if he's dead? They they don't know that, but they're trying to figure out whether the guy knew it or not. And I, I like Scott's answer. He doesn't know because I don't know either. In other words, we're not holding anything back. We're unlikely to ever. know. Well, if there was, if there was more evidence and he did know, I think Scott would tell us, but there's right. not more evidence. So right. 202 1320 Debbie, you're on. What's on your mind? 
Hi, Lee. Hi, Jason. This is Debbie from Arizona. I just thought it was a very interesting interview with Mr. Ritter. And I thought something that really caught me when he said that they would have blown up the Crimean Bridge right away. Okay. And I think we have to give Russia some credit here that they tried to remove all these individuals. They've tried to get these citizens out of there. They've tried every diplomatic means going through international agencies. Um, you know, and, and let's talk about the negotiations when they murdered, Keep murdered their lead negotiator, correct? Yes, that's right. Russia shot their own lead negotiator. Do you remember, remember that, Jason? They killed their own lead negotiator. They shot him. I thought it was a U. I thought it was a Ukrainian lead negotiator who was killed. I, I don't right. remember that. Right. You, that's what we're saying. Right, Debbie? You're saying yeah. Ukraine killed their own lead negotiator. Right, Debbie? Correct. Correct. That's what we were saying, Jason. Yeah. And what concluded on that I looked at, that this is the same MO that we do, the CIA does in the Middle East to these people in the Middle Eastern countries. Using terrorist tactics, as they like to call them, blowing people up, using car bombs, all this. So someone, someone somewhere has to give them a how-to to do this, right? And, and didn't Russia back in July state that if you cross a red line, then we're going to take out the decision-making? Yeah, and we're gonna do uh, let me point out that the Kirsch Bridge there was a target for Ukraine that they announced since the beginning of the special military operation in February. Yeah. Ukraine's been talking about taking this bridge out, right, Jason? Yep. Yeah, salivating over it almost, you would say. Yes, indeed. But, but then, see, now with Russia bringing in these two independents into the Russian Federation, this all changes now because of Russian territory. And I believe, yes. this is my personal belief, okay, I'm not, uh, they're going to take Poland out, they're going to hit something else, and don't be surprised we don't get hit, okay, if we keep this monkey in the round. Keep supplying crap that we, sh and why do we have any business in there in the first place? We have no business interest, do we? Well, we're in there because for 80 years, we've used Ukrainian government to try to, and Ukrainian Nazis, to try to put pressure on Russia. And you can read about that in the article I mentioned all the time. To catch a Nazi, Bill's voice, Google that, to catch a Nazi. Okay. And you know, I talk about this all the time, Jason. The U.S. has been up to this since the 40s using Ukraine. That's why it's our business, because our business is trying to, overthrow countries. Well, I think what we're also seeing, Lee, is you look at Joe Biden, right? He's been a big cog in the machine of government for a long time. He wasn't the janitor. He's been in the Senate, you know, for almost 50 years. So I'm not saying, you know, anything other than it gives him a long, long to see where these corrupt systems exist and how he can burrow in there and personally benefit. And when you consider things like that phone call, remember there was somebody who was like in the room with, was it Yashenko or Poroshenko? 
The guy was recording the call with Joe Biden after Trump wins. And Biden is essentially saying, hey, look, you know, this incoming guy, he doesn't understand what we're working on in Ukraine. I'll still be active as a private individual. He's basically doing exactly what they then later would accuse Trump of doing with Zelensky, having some sort of inappropriate conversation, except Trump was the president of the United States and Joe Biden was just a uh, outgoing vice president letting letting this guy know that, you know, well, Jason, yeah, great call, Debbie. Thank, thanks for the call. Biden. So, Jason, let me run yeah. one idea behind by you for a second. I was thinking about this today. Yeah. Uh, and so I'll try to explain this, but it's a, it's a bit weird. So bear with me for one sec. For a long time, people are used to thinking of America's adversaries as other countries. You follow me? Yeah. You know. Russia or China yeah. or Germany or whoever. So what what I'm asking people to do is give up for a second that metaphor, because I do not think the adversary is not is actually a I don't think it's Russia or China, but I also don't think it's any other country. And where I get this theory from, Jason, is I'm watching the people in Europe, the leaders in Europe. And I'll ask a question. If I were to say, Jason dropped, let, let me know when he's back, because I actually want to run this idea by Jason. So I want people to think about this. What you're used to is, if I said, who are the leaders of Europe answering to? You might think, well, what country? China, for instance. You might say, well, they're all lick spittles for China. But I do not think... I think that's an old way of looking at it. And I think today the answer is actually a non-governmental organization. I, and I'll, I'll call it broadly the WEF, the Davos crowd, as Tom Longo likes to say, and uh, the New World Order. I think now it's not one specific government. And one thing that that group of people believe in is they don't believe in sovereignty. You know, we've talked about Strobe Talbot being opposed to national sovereignty. And they accuse people who believe in sovereignty, like Trump and his supporters, of being extremists. And I think what you're seeing in Europe with its leadership is the death of sovereignty. In other words, Macron or Liz Truss are not primarily thinking about the people of France or England. And they're acting completely consistently with that belief. They say they're not in favor of sovereignty, and now they're acting like it. So we're seeing government. Jason, what I'm saying is I'm seeing governments across Europe yeah. act consistently and consistent with the belief that they don't believe in sovereignty. And I think the new model for yeah. the adversary of the United States is not any government. It's not governments in general, because people realize the power is in some combination of big business. This is the WEF, uh, controlled media, social media yeah. and news media, combined with national leaders 
that do not pledge allegiance to a flag, but pledge allegiance to ski slopes of Davos. Does that make sense, Jason? <laughs> well, EU, yeah, right. EU, NATO, WEF, WHO, all of these conglomerations of nations that, you know, claim to and seem to demonstrate power over us as citizens of the United States. And Tedros if people are confused, because I'm seeing a lot of people ask themselves, what is Europe thinking? Germany, England, doing all this stuff that is going to hurt its citizens. Well, that understanding implies that you think the leaders are looking out for the best interests of their country. And I'm saying they're not looking out. The leader Schultz, Olaf Schultz in Germany, is not looking out for the German people's interests. He's being a non-sovereign. He's looking out for the interests of the New World Order. Does that make sense, Jason? Globalists. Yeah, globalism yeah. versus nationalism. Yes, and that they're yeah. acting, they're not acting insane. People act like they're acting insane or stupid because, you know, they go, well, what Schultz is doing is not in the best interest of the people in Germany. But what I'm saying is they've already told you they're not in favor of sovereignty. So Schultz yeah. is not acting in the interest of the German people. But he's not acting in the interest of the Chinese people or the Ukrainian people. He's acting in the interest of Davos. Does that make sense, Jason? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a, a weird new metaphor. We're at the first point in history when across the globe, leaders of nations are not acting in their own country's best interests. But it's obvious. They've said that for a long time, for decades. It's sad. Right? Yeah. I so mean, this is globalism. Now, it's taking hold. So, you know, that's why when some people bring up China, it irritates me because it is taking you away from what's going on. And the WF will trust me, use China as much as they want to. I'm not saying they won't have anything to do with China. But they will use it in whatever way they want to. Is is not China driving the boat for the WF? I think that's a mistake. The, the mistake is to put any country behind it, like act, acting like, well, the WF is really doing China's bidding. They don't do any country's bidding. The point is to not do any country's bidding, but to do something that benefits them on technocratic corporatist level. Does that make sense, Jason? Yeah. How exactly did Klaus Schwab gain so much influence, Lee? It's not clear to me. Like, why does anybody care what that guy says? Well, broadly, what they did was they put together a group. The WF is some of the most powerful com companies in the world. So um, I'll put it like this. You put together a group of some of the most powerful companies in the world, and a lot of people are going to listen to you. Does that so make wait a minute, sense? Wait a minute. Not only that, so he's got these powerful companies that are influencing governments. It's still corporate power combined with government power. It's essentially neo-fascism, isn't it? That's right. But, but, but because it's not essentially a political system, 
it's like the Chamber of Commerce. You know, it's the International Chamber of Commerce, <laughs> and it's very modern. Yeah. If you think about this from an old metaphor, the way you try to do it is you try to take over governments and then build the corporate power from there. But Klaus Schwab realized if you have the corporate power, the governments follow. Does that make uh -huh. sense? Yeah. So let's take a short break, Jason. And when sure. we come back, pretty soon, we'll hear a great speech from Taylor Hudak educating you about Julian Assange on a right. weekend when we're celebrating Julian Assange. Jason, what in fact is the name of the show? This is the backstory. Story and on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C., the capital of the empire of lies and hypocrisy. So, Jason, I like to occasionally set myself impossible goals. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. You know, because if you, you don't try for goals that are just outside your reach, you're not trying. Does that make sense? If my goal stars were to hit the moon. Exactly right. That's a good way to put it. So here's my newest impossible goal, Jason. And I need your help. I'm I not only am I have an impossible goal, I'm recruiting you, Jason. Okay. Yeah. So let's figure out how we can a lot of people talk about a coalition of left and right. But let's figure out how we can actually do it. Because I think it is more important than ever. And I think the short, the for rule one, and I admit, by the way, I'm not suggesting this goal because I've been perfect. I like to call liberals morons as much as the next person. But I'm <laughs> going to suggest that it's a bad tactic. Yeah. I'm going to suggest that rule one for our attempt to make a left-right coalition is to not allow people to insult or impugn right. the motives of others. Right. On the left, by the way, people on the left say it all the time. They'll say, you can only get in so much of a coalition because at the end of the day, they're right-wing racist Nazis. <laughs> now, Tulsi, in her announcement that she was leaving the Democratic Party, said something. Did you see her announcement on Twitter that she was leaving, uh, leaving the Democrats? No, I I saw her speaking to Joe Rogan. So what she said in her tweet, because she's got a small amount of space, right? Yeah. I, I think this is so ballsy of her. She mentioned the Democrat is a party of anti-white racism. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And and that is, you know, gutsy of her to admit because right. they clearly are. But. To call it anti-white racism, do you, do you see why I'm saying that's a pretty bold move on Tulsi Gabbard's part? Yeah, because it's turning around and slapping the face of all the mainstream stuff we've been hearing since George George Floyd's death. And uh, and I I think she's not only right, but I think it's important for her to discuss. Yeah. Uh, because the effect of it 
has been to, I'll, I'll put it like this. When you start by telling all white people that they're racist out of the box, a lot of yeah. people, I think, does, does that make sense, Jason? A lot of people Please. aren't going to want to engage at all. If I said I'm, all black people are racist, if anyone <laughs> was black, why would they want to talk to me? I mean, the irony of it is if you say all of any kind of people are anything, that is the definition of racism. So it's just so stupid, it can barely be discussed. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to, let me talk about how I think the coalition could go. What needs to be acknowledged about liberals is a lot of times they are people who care about people. Now, this gets that tendency to care about poor people or, or I believe Look, a lot me, of liberals. Excuse me one second, Lee. That's the key there. They care about people in an abstract sense, people they don't know. They're not inviting, you know, a family of a dozen destitute migrants to live in their home. But they want it to be known that this is who they are. That they care in general about poor people. Well, I'll give you my wacky theory on that. Because people on the left tend to eschew religion, they don't have, you know, one thing religion does, yeah. obviously, is a lot of charity. So whereas a, a Christian True. on the right may help a family, actually help the family through their church, yeah. you know, bring in food or something, like because liberals have eschewed religion, have given it up. They don't have yeah. any mechanism to help poor people often. And so I think they feel some sense of guilt about that. And so by virtue signaling and by saying, you see, I gave it the office. I'm not racist because I'm a Democrat. Right. 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 Does that make sense? So. Oh, yeah. I, I think one way to bring people on the left and right together is to have them collaborate on actual charity events. Does that make sense? It's to get people together from the left and right and say, well, let's help build. You know, I used to have a podcast about South Dakota politics and it was sponsored by a company or organization. What they went into is poor communities and they raised money and then the homes were built by the homeless people, the homes yeah, that the that, homeless that people were going to live in, and right? Them. Because it, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. So I'm saying let's get people of goodwill who are left or right, Republican or Democrat, to start doing actual good for people. Does that make sense, Jason? It does, and I like the idea of using. See, this is what I was saying about the migrant crisis. Is that all right? You know, whatever we want to say about it, there's this number of people that are here now. They need places to live. They need jobs. They need communities. Fundamentally, there's large areas that are underpopulated and unpopulated. And why are we housing and talking about housing people in the most expensive real estate in the United States of America? And I mean, I mean, if we could, you know, use the migrants to build a community for migrants and train them and everything. That seems to make a lot of sense. No. And one thing that I, I think that I'm irritated by often by the left is they do not acknowledge something that's true. And I'm going to use Hunter Biden's example. There's some people are entitled because they are wealthy 
No doubt. Right? Do you agree, Jason? No doubt. Sure. Yeah. Some people are entitled because they're wealthy. However, it's equally true that some people are entitled because they're poor. Does that make sense? There are plenty of poor people who think the world owes them stuff. Right. And, and rich people think that, too. And I'm opposed to that in both cases. But what say you, Jason? No, you're right, actually. And, you know, I, I see it a lot in the uh, comments section on YouTube. You know, people are, they feel it's their uh, right or their, you know, uh, uh, just to offer their opinion when they know nothing about the underlying subject matter and are contributing nothing to the conversation. It's just disparage somebody online. <laughs> Everybody see, feels entitled. I was thinking about early communism, like I've talked about this before with Daniel Zarr, among other people. In the early days of socialism and communism, they were in favor of the working people, right? Right, yeah. And th that's what they said. But in fact, they were actually supporting working people. People who worked in coal mines, for right. instance, right? or children who worked in factories. Nowadays... Yep. I, I think the mistake the left gets is they've gotten away from working people and they're more concerned with poor people. Poor people are not inherently virtuous. Ah, Just because you're poor doesn't mean you're a good guy. Do you agree, right. Jason? Well, that's an interesting nuance that you've pointed out that I didn't realize until you've just said it right now. And that's importantly because... See, a lot of what's happening that I see, we are, appear to be cultivating a generation of entitlement where people feel that everything is owed to them and that they do not need to work to produce anything. And what you're describing is previously a movement that was focused on the core of society that was working and producing the things that actually made wealth. No, right. And if, if, if you want to help people... If you want to help poor people, if you want to help a poor family, you don't help them by being poor. Does that make sense? You can be poor yeah. and help them, but you don't help them by taking a vow of poverty. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who uh, are involved in charities that are saying that they're helping poor people, but they're actually thieves. They're taking advantage of poor people. That's that's true, too. And that's an important thing that needs to be recognized, is that some people will use charity as a way to make money. There's right. no doubt about that. Right. It, well, and just, misery as a way to make money. That seems to be what's going on in Ukraine as well. And, and not just Ukraine, but around the world. Right. And, I, and uh, there's a whole community out there of people who are entrepreneurs and are focused on making money. You see this online sometimes. People tell you how to start your own business. Yeah. That kind of thing. Does that make yeah. sense, Jason? Sure. So what I picture is, this goes back to what I said at the beginning of the show. I picture the Libertarian Party as a party of people who are entrepreneurial and want to truly help other people. Who want to show them how to make money. And show them how to, you know... You can give a home to somebody or you can show them how to build a home. Right. And you're much better off with the second one. Does it make sense, Jason? 
Yeah, yeah. Give a man a fish versus teach him how to fish. Exactly right, yeah. And so we'll be talking about this on our show, High Dive, on Patreon. And tell people how to get that show, then we'll get it go. Yeah, on patreon.com slash Stranahan or subscribestar.com and patreon.com slash crowdsource the truth on Saturdays. Thanks, Jason. Great job co-hosting today. Great guest, Scott Ritter. And now here's a great speech from journalist and Assange activist Taylor Hudak on the backstory. Is of utmost importance in this time, so they would let their fellow um, media people around the world know what they think is important to know right now. And when I called, when I emailed you first, Taylor, I said, you know, everybody can speak whatever they want because the topic is freedom of speech. And I knew she would pick that topic, but I said, but I really need and want you to speak about Julian Assange. And of course, you're doing this today. Thank you so much for that. I can tell you so much. We have lots of colleagues here who really appreciate that you have done so much work on this very important topic, how they treat Julian Assange. And I think there is um, a good idea by some journalists, and they will tell you later. And I think this is going to be the great kickoff start for something amazing, a big campaign. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And thank you all for having me. I am so pleased to be here speaking about what not only I consider to be the greatest threat to press freedom, but what also many civil liberties organizations, human rights organizations, and press freedom organizations consider to be the greatest threat to press freedom, and that is the prosecution of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. This case is extraordinary. Here we have an award-winning Australian journalist who is facing 175 years in a maximum security prison in the United States because he published information in the public interest and he published the truth. I will do a quick overview here. Is the presentation available? You don't have one? Okay. I'll just keep going here. I'll do a brief case overview. Julian Assange is, of course, the founder of WikiLeaks. He founded this organization in 2006, and WikiLeaks really shaped the way that people viewed media in general. This was namely because of the technology that was used in the very secure Dropbox that allowed for whistleblowers to securely and anonymously provide classified material to WikiLeaks, and even WikiLeaks staff members would not know who was providing this information, and then also to the funding model. Here we hear a lot about independent journalism. Well, that all started with WikiLeaks because they created this idea that you can fund a media organization from donations and from the public. WikiLeaks has published numerous documents, of course, exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan that really shaped people's perspective on these wars, human rights abuses, including torture programs in Guantanamo Bay, and also unlawful CIA spying on innocent citizens through Vault 7. And this journalism, this work, won Julian Assange numerous awards. So this is a very important point that I want you all to remember, and that is that the journalism that won Julian Assange numerous awards is the same journalism that has him in a prison today. He is in Belmarsh Prison in England, which is a maximum security prison, and it houses some of the most notorious, dangerous, and violent criminals in England. That is where a journalist is sitting right now. It's absolutely shameful. 
And just to bring you back to what had happened on April 11th, 2019, of course, Julian Assange was arrested, charged with 17 counts related to espionage, one related to computer intrusion. The espionage charges are related to the receipt and publication of classified material. And I'll continue on here with the persecution of Julian Assange. So as a result of doing this work, we all know many people suffer from disinformation campaigns and targeting campaigns against them. And eventually, Julian Assange had no choice but to enter the Ecuadorian embassy in London in June 2012 to seek asylum there. Unfortunately, he spent seven years in this embassy as an asylum seeker. During this time, he lacked proper medical care, access to sunlight, proper time with his family. He was confined to a very small room, of course, unable to leave the embassy. And these conditions were considered to be torturous conditions after U.N. Special Rapporteur on Torture, Niels Melzer, examined Assange and determined that that was taking place and that he was exhibiting symptoms of torture. So this is someone who has suffered extraordinarily as of this point. And, of course, WikiLeaks was still operating throughout this time. And then this is what brings me to when the persecution really started to increase and become very vicious. And it's interesting to note the timeline here. In 2017, WikiLeaks made an announcement that they were going to release information related to CIA spying. And this eventually became the greatest CIA leak in history. And shortly after that, the U.S. intelligence services, we believe, that to be the CIA, contracted the embassy's security firm. Oftentimes, embassies have security firms. This one did, and it was Undercover Global, UC Global. The job of this company was to protect Julian Assange, to protect the people who worked at the embassy and also the visitors. But instead, U.S. intelligence invited the CEO of this company to re-network and rewire the security system into a surveillance system to gather information on Assange, all of his contacts, even his attorneys. His attorney-client privilege was being violated. The privacy of his friends, his family members, himself was being violated, and the case is still moving forward. So again, visitors had to provide the embassy employees with their devices. They had their data taken from them against their will, without their knowledge, and then this was sent to U.S. intelligence services. And some of the very grotesque things that happened as a part of this surveillance operation is that there was a camera placed into the women's bathroom, and even the DNA of Assange's infant son was taken from a diaper. That is how depraved these individuals are and what they did to a journalist who deeply embarrassed the U.S. government and the intelligence apparatus. And lastly, I will point out as well that the CIA, in fact, plotted to assassinate Assange. Many of you may be looking at me like, okay, this is maybe a step too far. Come on, you're, you're just speculating. There's, they wouldn't possibly do that, or how could you really prove that? Well, the reality is we had 30 former U.S. officials who went to Yahoo News and revealed this, that yes, in fact, there were serious plans to kidnap and assassinate Assange while he was in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Fortunately, this plan did not come to fruition, but there were serious plans to kill this individual, to assassinate him. And think about this. The U.K., recently just approved the extradition order. 
how could it be that the UK government approved the extradition of a man to a country whose intelligence agencies conspired to assassinate him. That is the state of our media right now. That is the state of the Western Empire, the Western intelligence agencies in Western countries, in particular, the United States government and the UK government working in cahoots and together. I will go through the prosecution here quickly. In 2018, there was an indictment filed against Assange. Again, this came after Vault 7. Likely, this could have been a retaliation for the Vault 7 publications, but the government of the United States sought to basically criminalize his work, in particular exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan, and this was the information that was provided by whistleblower Chelsea Manning. Assange was then, of course, arrested April 11th, 2019. Extradition hearings took place in London in February of 2020. September and October of 2020, I covered these extensively, listened in on all of the court hearings. And then a few months later, on January 4th, 2021, a magistrate's court issued a decision on extradition. And it was stunning. We were very happy with this decision. The judge actually rejected the extradition order on grounds that it would be oppressive to extradite Assange under Section 91 of the UK Extradition Act of 2003. This was due to the fact that Julian Assange is suffering from Asperger's and it would be oppressive to extradite him to the United States. Then the Crown Prosecution Service, which is representing the U.S. government, appealed this decision and the Crown Prosecution Service won the case on appeal, and then UK Home Secretary Preeti Patel eventually approved the extradition order. And now Assange's legal team has filed its perfected grounds on appeal, and now it is up to the high court judges to make a decision on extradition. And I think that you can gather from what I just said that this has been somewhat of an abusive process, and also it is oftentimes that the process itself is the punishment. Now, what happens if Assange is extradited to the United States? Unfortunately, we learned a lot of very disturbing information about what could happen to him if extradited throughout the extradition hearings. He would likely be tried in the Eastern District Court of Virginia, where no national security defendant has ever won a case there. Let me repeat that. No national security defendant has ever won a case in this court. The majority of the jury pool would be made up of ex-intelligence, their family members, and their friends. The case would also not be public, and press would not have access to cover this case because it is a national security case and SEPA regulations would be put into effect. And as a national security defendant, Assange himself would also likely be placed under SAMs or special administrative measures. He would be housed in a specific unit, isolated from the public. This is actually beyond just a solitary confinement. This is something much more strict. And his access to his attorneys, his ability to prepare his case would be seriously hindered and it would not be a situation in which he would be able to effectively and properly prepare his defense with his attorneys. In fact, one of the defense witnesses, Yancey Ellis, who is an attorney and often represents people who are housed in this particular unit at this prison, and that is the Alexandria Detention Center, this person had stated that 
when he speaks with his clients in this unit, they have to scream at each other because of the steel doors prevent them from having a normal conversation. So that is the level of interference we have when someone in this position is trying to prepare a case. So the point here to take away is that Julian Assange will not at all receive a fair trial in the United States if extradited. And if convicted, he is likely to be held in ADX Florence or another maximum security prison. ADX Florence in Colorado houses some of the country's most notorious criminals and offenders like Ted Kaczynski, the Boston Marathon bombers, all of those type of criminal offenders. And again, this is where the United States government would like to place an award-winning journalist and publisher because he embarrassed the United States and exposed intelligence corruption. And also, too, because he is being charged under the Espionage Act, he would not be able to provide a public interest defense. And just here is a visual of the prison conditions that he would be subjected to. You could see uh, the cell, again, three by five meters by two. That's seven feet by 12 feet. So not the best of conditions, of course. And also, he would be held in his cell for 22, 23 hours a day and limited access to the outside world. And also for many of the doctors here, I wanted to make note of this, that Julian Assange, unfortunately, is also a torture victim. I alluded to this earlier. And if you are concerned about Julian Assange's health, as many doctors are, you can join Doctors for Assange by visiting doctorsforassange.org. And you can sign the petitions, become involved, and help make a difference in this case. Now, some of you may be wondering, okay, but why should I care? I'm not a journalist. I'm not necessarily an activist. This case doesn't really impact me. Well, it certainly does because this case has an impact on the public's right to know and the public's right to access information. The Assange case criminalizes standard and normal journalistic activity that journalists engage in every single day, specifically related to source protection and news gathering techniques. The Assange case also sets a global precedent that empowers governments to extradite foreign citizens for political purposes. And lastly, the Assange case is a threat to the First Amendment, which has become the global standard for press freedom. Again, to reiterate what I had said earlier, this is an attack on access to information. We have had a tremendous attack on access to information also when it comes to COVID-19 and a number of other subjects. We see immense amounts of censorship. And again, this case is very important. Assange's fate is inherently tied to your fate. And again, your ability to access the truth. Because without access to truthful and accurate information, we cannot fight for a better future. We cannot fight for anything. Because without access to the truth, we cannot understand and we cannot confront the real issues that are ahead of us and that need to be addressed. And of course, I need to close here with ways on how to help because this case is not over. Assange is not extradited to the United States. He is still in Belmarsh prison under horrible conditions. The situation is dire, not only for the broader press implications that are there, but also his general well-being and health. So I encourage you to please act. And I made this font intentionally very large so you could all take pictures with your phone and that you'll go home and you'll remember to, to take action, visit these websites, attend these events, and 
This is a little bit more information about myself. I am a journalist with Activism Munich. Many of you may be pleased here to know that my Assange reporting is also translated into the German language. I'm very proud to work for Activism Munich. We are a nonprofit independent news organization based in Germany, and we publish in English and German. I also report for thelastamericanvagabond.com. I'm active on Twitter and Telegram, but if you would like to stay up to date with my work, you can there. And lastly, if there is time, I have a very special message from Christine Assange, which is the mother of Julian Assange. I thank her for allowing me to share this method message with you all. Many of you in here are parents, your mothers. You can relate to Christine. She is a mother. And at the end of the day, we all must remember that Julian Assange is a human being. He is a son. He is a father, a brother, a friend, and he is suffering tremendously. And those around him who love him are also suffering tremendously. And I just would like you all to hear a message from Christine because I think there is no better person who can advocate for you than your own mother. And I wanted to end off on this note. And I thank you all very much for listening to this presentation. It's been my pleasure to speak to you about this case. And if you could just take two minutes to hear this plea, it should be embedded into the PowerPoint. Thank you all very much. the UK government's decision to extradite Julian to the United States, I respectfully make my plea directly to the parties involved, including US President Joe Biden, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, and the lead solicitor of Julian's UK legal team, Gareth Pearce. After 11 and a half years in pre-trial detention and with legal proceedings dragging on with no end in sight, it has become clear to all following that this case is political and requires a diplomatic solution. When people become very invested in winning at all costs, the collateral damage is truth, justice and humanity. I implore all sides to take a step back from the heat of the fight for a moment and to reflect. I ask all sides to consider a diplomatic solution. Negotiating an end to conflict is a normal part of civilised existence within a marriage, the boardroom, long-running legal cases and disputes between nation-states. In the spirit of bringing this to an end, both sides will need to give a little. Julian has been detained long enough to satisfy any needs for revenge from those pursuing prosecution. He has suffered enough to satisfy those wishing to make him a symbol for press freedom. I beseech those who say his needs as a suffering human being first. And I have faith that with goodwill on both sides, a resolution can be reached. Thank you for hearing my plea. And so that's a message from Christine Assange and Taylor Hudak. And that was such a great speech. Taylor sent them to me over the weekend that I thought it should be part of the record here on the backstory. Now, Jason's gone, right? Okay. So, 202-521-1320. If anyone wants a quick call, we have a couple minutes left in the show, but not much time. So, you'll have to get a call in quick if we're going to talk to you. But what Christina Sanger was talking about there is a principle that I want to use in 
you know, I'll put it like this. I'm convinced that if there's to be any coalition building between the left and the right, it's not going to come from political parties because political parties, they make their money and they get votes on conflict. But by, and it's what Christina Sanz said, hoping for a negotiated settlement between the left and the right, with both sides willing to admit their mistakes. And I think both sides, and that includes, this is my objection to a lot of Trump supporters. You can, okay, let's go to calls quickly, because I asked for them. 202-521-1320. Robert called in. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind? Yeah, I was wanted to say, people are acting like Trump was never president. I heard something about that uh, Barack Obama has a shoe warehouse in Chicago with all types of documents in it. What, you heard anything about that? Is it any fact to that? No, he, he may, because I think his presidential library was going to be built in Chicago, correct? I believe so, but I heard that it's some fact of some furniture store that he got all his presidential documents stored at. And they said it wasn't safe at Mar-a-Lago? Well, yeah, and obviously that was an attempt. What happens is a lot of times their stories fall apart. So if Russiagate falls apart, let's make Documentgate. Does that make sense, Robert? <laughs> I'm just trying to comprehend some things. Is he not deserving of a presidential library? Right. And and like he pointed out, he declassified the documents. But Joe Biden reclassified them. That's the other part of that story. Joe Biden reclassified documents, and then they're accusing him of having classified documents. But it is obvious it wasn't classified at the time so we'll be back tomorrow thanks for the call robert great job we'll be back tomorrow join our community of people who are in favor of freedom and free speech here on the backstory